0: Have a seat. Good morning. As you take out your Bibles, share a little news with you. I, uh, most of you probably already know news travels fast around this place. <laughs> but as, as we all know, the creator of the universe owns every square inch of real estate on this entire planet. But as of Monday, The state of Arizona now recognizes that God owns this corner, and it's titled in the name of Calvary Chapel Surprise, so, and if you would just continue to pray along those lines that we would be faithful stewards of this property that God has given to us, that we would use it to glorify him, to bring people into the knowledge of him. There, I, as, as I sit and I pray with the elders and leaders and men's ministries and different prayers, I, I'm overwhelmed by the fact that, again, we are surrounded by so many people who are lost. You know, surprise isn't this booming metropolis, but there's a lot of people around us, in our neighborhoods and in our, in our sphere of influence, and we can, can use this place to spread the gospel message. So continue to pray for that again, as was mentioned earlier. Invite your unsaved friends and neighbors this afternoon to the harvest, harvest uh, crusade here at the church, four o'clock. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1. Open your Bibles, please. We'll continue our study through this, this letter. Man, beautiful, beautiful morning this morning, huh? I was, I was really wrestling with the fact of moving church outside. But <laughs> One of the things about this time of year, though, is as time is changing and weather's getting cooler, it also means kind of the end of, quote-unquote, vacation season. And I hope all of you had a chance to get a good vacation this summer. And vacations are, are interesting. They kind of break into different categories. But one, you know, you just go and rest. You don't really do anything. But then there's also those vacations that when you get home, you need rest, right? Because you're just boom, 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 going, 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 sightseeing-type vacations. And you have this whole list of things that you got to do. And if you're not careful, you can just blow right past something and miss, miss something that, that is so plainly there. I, I grew up in Colorado, and I spent probably 25 years of my life in Colorado, and I went skiing one time. Now, when I went to college in Iowa... And people found out about that. I mean that, that, that was a crime to them, you know, going living in Colorado and, and basically never skiing. Well, we've lived in Arizona now probably fourteen, yeah, fourteen years and I've never been to the Grand Canyon. That might be equally as as bad. I gotta fix that. I know, I know. But I I'm, I'm, I think of this, and the, the the reason I'm saying this is because sometimes you can get on those vacation trips where, you, again, you got thing that boom, 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 you got an agenda to get to, and us guys especially, right? You know, we got a checklist, we got to get through. And I'm I remember this movie back in the in the '80s where the, it's about a family going on vacation, and they get to the Grand Canyon, and the fam the whole family is there, and they're just like, wow, taking it all in. And Dad comes up, and he walks right next to him, and he goes, "All right, let's go," you know. <laughs> Not taking in the beauty and, the, and the, uh, the amazing wonder of the Grand Canyon. And I've heard, I've heard my parents have been there several times and they say that you can stand in one place and as the sun moves, the whole landscape changes. And you see things differently as the sun reflects differently on the rocks and everything. And my whole reason for saying that is our goal, my, my, my goal is to teach all the way through the word of God. And that's a challenge at times because unless you keep going at a pretty good pace, you're never going to get through this. There's a lot in here. But as we start going through this letter to Peter, I'm stuck in the introduction. I'm finding it difficult to quickly move through the first part of chapter 1. And I believe it's for a purpose. God wants us to, to sit a minute and to see as he as he shines light maybe a little differently than we have, have seen it looked at before. So we are gonna continue in our look at the introduction to this letter. We've looked at the first two verses in depth the last few times together, and we'll pick up in verse three. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now I want to stop right there because many people growing up in a, in a like religious legalistic type background have oftentimes looked at God, the Father, as this angry, crotchety old man sitting on, a, sitting on his throne, ready to throw lightning bolts at us whenever we step out of line. And it was only Jesus who stepped in and appeased him. He's our, he's our buddy, he's our friend, and God is the big angry guy in the sky. Notice what our verse says. And if that is you, please absorb this, because I know that people have struggled with this, have wrestled with this. Notice what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great Mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Whose mercy? God, the Father's mercy. The Father. We have a loving Heavenly Father, a caring Heavenly Father, a merciful Heavenly Father, a long-suffering Heavenly Father. Paul wrote this to the The church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, he said, But God, speaking of the Father, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God the Father. the the Heavenly Father, His great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, many of us think that God hates us until Jesus steps in and now He loves us. No, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that's the love that He has for you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1-3, he called, called Him the Father of mercies. Now, as our verse continues now into verse 4, And I want to to read verse 3 again, leading into verse 4. It says again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have been born again to a living hope, and it tells us to an inheritance. Now, another thing that we need to understand, this word inheritance means exactly what we understand it to be, an inheritance. And an inheritance is not something that you earn. You don't get an inheritance because of things that you did. You get an inheritance because of who your parents are, who your family is. You receive an inheritance because of the family you belong to. And you had nothing to do with you being a part of that family. You were born naturally into that family, out of no work of your own. And the same is true with the inheritance that we receive. It's not because of anything that we do. And I make that a point because if you have a new American Standard Bible like I do and I teach out of, notice that word obtain. It's in italics. That means it is not in the original text. And The translators put that in there to try to help clarify for us, but I believe they do it a disservice because that word obtain can make it sound like it's something that we have to go and acquire. That's not at all what it says. If we read it, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. That is what we receive because we have been born again. This inheritance is ours because of a relationship. We don't have to go obtain it. It is ours. But just like any inheritance, regardless of whether you have, have, it's written in a will somewhere that you, you are to get this, you have to go and receive that inheritance. Just because your name is listed in a will somewhere does you no good. Unless you go and you receive that inheritance, you make it your own. And the same is true with ours. And we're gonna get to that in a little bit more in a minute. But I wanna focus on the inheritance for a moment. It describes it for us, it tells us that it is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it will not fade away. Imperishable, it is incorruptible. Undefiled, that means it's unstained, it's unpolluted. Everything that we would receive possibly as an inheritance here on earth, physical, natural things, the whole earth is is winding down. Things are going from better to worse all the time, right? I mean, even, even in our own physical state, by the time we get to the age to receive an inheritance, half the time we're too old to enjoy it all anyway, Right? <laughs> We get we get to that, that point where we start to realize that even we are deteriorating and winding down. I've I've made it a made it a point over the last couple of years to get back into better shape and to work out and to exercise and I hear I'm thinking I'm doing pretty good on Friday. We had a, it was called sixth grade day at my son's school, and it was just a great day. It was designed for dads and sons of sixth graders to go out together and spend the day together, and there was, there was some, some good conversations that were done. It was a great thing done by my, my son's school, and uh, talking about becoming a man and those types of things, but intermixed in there, you got sixth graders, so you got to entertain them a little bit, so we had a flag football game and laser tag. My hips hurt, my knees hurt, my back hurt from playing flag football and laser tag with a bunch of sixth graders. My son, didn't affect him at all. He's bouncing all over the place. Man, I'm like, I need some recovery time. The inheritance that we have is incorruptible. It will not. It will not lose its value. It says it will not fade away. How many of you have lost any value in, in some of the things that you've invested in? Many of us have felt that, but the, the inheritance that we have, it will not fade away. It will not lose any value. And notice it says that it is reserved. That means that it is guarded, that it is watched over. And it is reserved in heaven where, where rust can't to it, get to it, moths can't get to it. As Jesus said, thieves can't break in and steal it. It's reserved. It's guarded there. But I love how Peter makes this, again, so personal. It's reserved in heaven for you, for you, intimately, personally, each one of us. And so often, I find myself in this all the time, and when I'm talking to people, I, I sense this, and I get this feeling like, yes, okay, salvation, it's just this great big thing and all of us are in it like like this just big grain silo that we're just all in. It's just this this quantifiable thing. We need to understand that God's mercies, God's grace, God's inheritance for us is infinite. We're all not gonna get just one little piece of the pie. It's infinite. What's infinity divided by a billion? Infinity. It doesn't change its value based based on who's there. It doesn't change its value based on time. This inheritance will never fade away, will never lose value, and it is reserved in heaven for you. The text takes an interesting twist or turn right here in verse five, though, because we're talking about the inheritance. But look at verse five. It says, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Here, Peter switches from talking about the inheritance to the inheritors. And it's important that we understand that because what good is an inheritance if we can't get there? It's reserved in heaven for me, but I gotta navigate all of these paths and what if I fall off of this way or what if I go a different direction? What if I get lost on the way? It does me no good to get there. And Peter clearly says, speaking of the inheritors, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by what? The power of God. So not only is the inheritance reserved and protected, as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are protected. Soak that in for a second. You are protected. Not just the inheritance, but you are. Now he tells us that the vehicle with which we, that it's protected is our faith, but it's by the power of God. Now To go back to what we talked about real quickly in verse 3, it says that he has caused us to be born again. Jesus said that that is the only way. In order for us to get to heaven and to receive this inheritance, we must be born again. There is no other way. Jesus continued in John chapter 3 after speaking of this. He said the verse that we, we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life that is being born again and it is something that we all must obtain that we all must that we all must receive but notice what it says again in verse 3 a court who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again here we get to that that interesting wrestling match that we had a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about verse 2. Caused us to be born again. Who began the work then? God did. God caused us to be born again. And when we read along with that, Philippians 1.6, it says, For I am confident of this very thing, That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That word perfect means to bring to an end, to complete, to accomplish. So if God caused you to be born again, the word tells us here that he will be faithful to bring it to accomplishment. That he will bring it to completion. Now, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this is the the big wrestling match that we have between those that stand firmly on one side of God's sovereignty and therefore denying man's responsibility. And then there's others on the other side that say, put the, the, the onus completely on us, man's responsibility, denying God's sovereignty. The Bible clearly teaches both. That we serve a sovereign, almighty God who causes us to be born again. But the Bible clearly teaches that we need to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior in order to be born again. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we need to embrace that mystery joyfully. Not wrestling over and over trying to get this fixed in our minds so that we can somehow completely understand it. Understand God wired us a certain way. And just like an electrician wires a house a certain way, you plug too many things into the circuits, you're going to blow a circuit. And if we try to plug too many things into the way God wires us, we're going to blow a circuit. He doesn't desire that in us. And I find it interesting, again, kind of a pivotal thing is this as he's going through this. Look at the beginning of verse 6. It says, "In this you greatly rejoice." In what? In what do we greatly rejoice? In the fact that we have an inheritance reserved for us in heaven that's protected by the power of God, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In this, you greatly rejoice. Now, I find it interesting that he doesn't, again, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, he doesn't continue to go on and explain like I have. He just states it as a fact. And I believe he does that because the people back then just embraced the the glory of it all not arguing over these different points. And it's important for us to do this because, again, without the assurance that this inheritance is there for us, that eternal life is waiting for us, and that we will get there because we are protected by the power of God, we are easily slipped into a bunch of deceptions that the enemy loves to. Are you really saved? Hmm, you know, a real Christian wouldn't think that way. A real Christian wouldn't do that. A real And before you know it, you can get so discouraged in your walk that you can just drive yourself crazy. Yes, we are to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are walking in a way, in a manner worthy of the calling that we have, but it's not God's desire for us to drive ourselves crazy. He doesn't want us to have a whole bunch of anxiety. He wants us to have assurance. Now, again... <laughs> Many of you talking about vacations or or restaurant reservations or something really special that you've planned that there are a lot of people involved and you have to make reservations for, you can get really nervous, right? I mean, you can have a lot of anxiety. Calling three or four times, I just want to make sure that, that that you know that this is all set. This Friday at seven o'clock. Okay, good. Calling back two days later, just want to make sure. The anxiety because you don't want to let your your friends down. You don't want to miss your flight. You don't want to have everything there there are no lost reservations in heaven there aren't there aren't there aren't these this line of receptionists when we get to heaven and, and you get up there and they say okay what was your name again do you do you have to no, no. let's try it by your credit card number you know uh, Understand, again, Peter tells us in verse 2 and verse 3 why we have the assurance. Why our reservations are a done deal and you can quit worrying about the reservation there. It's purchased in his blood, verse 2 tells us. And that the reservation has been confirmed by his reservation in verse 3. It's already purchased and it's already been confirmed. So you can quit worrying about it. And instead live joyfully for him. Serving him all out, completely living for him. You are free from having to worry about making the reservation and confirming it. I'm gonna give you a few verses. I'm gonna go through them relatively quickly. We'll put them up on the screens, but I encourage you to jot these down if you're a note taker. Go back, because these things should encourage us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them we're purchased by his blood it's confirmed by his resurrection and jesus lives today to make intercession for you right now right where you sit jesus is praying for you he is interceding on your behalf hebrews 10:14 for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified perfected for all time. Does that mean we're perfect? No. We make mistakes. We sin continue, even even after being saved. But in his books, by his offering, we have been perfected. How long? For all time. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Who is able to keep us from stumbling? Who's able to make us stand in his presence? Is it me? Is it you? Certainly not. Capital H, he. It's not, I can't stand blameless. If it's up to me not to stumble, I did it this morning already but it's him, him. Now, it's important that we understand, and I'm going to take a little sidestep here and come back to this in a moment, because Jesus said something very important in Matthew chapter 7. He said that there will come the day when many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. Why? Because in their pride and in their arrogance, they thought it was up to them to to purchase the ticket and to confirm their reservation. It's up to what I did. I did this stuff. I prophesied in your name. I I did these works in your name, but I did them. And Jesus said, I never knew you. You You never came to me. But in a beautiful verse of of contradistinction, Jesus said, I never knew them, but listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Eternal life. Just a real quick question, because some people might not have an understanding of this. How long is eternal life? (laughs) Eternal. It doesn't end. So if you have been born again, truly born again, your life is eternal. Eternal. People say, well, well, this person was a born-again believer, but they fell away from God, and they, and they ran away from God, and, and, and that, that can't happen. Because if that did, if you were born again and five years later decided, I want nothing to do with this and walk away, that'd be a five-year life, right? Not eternal. Now, there are, though. The prodigal son is an example in different stories where people drift away. I did that. I went away for a while, but I was protected by the power of God, and he brought me back. 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know it. Why do I make such a big deal of this? Because it is a big deal. You need to know that you are secure in your salvation so that you can be used by God in a greater way. Well, he continues in verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we greatly rejoice in this inheritance that we have, but he says, even though we're here even though we're going through difficulties, even though we're going through trials. But I want to take a couple of minutes and look at what Peter tells us about the trials that we face. First of all, look at the restraint in the trials that we face. He says it is for a limited while, a little while. God places a limit on the trials that we face, the time frame that we will face them. Now I know that there are some people in here right now that are saying, My time frame is a long one. I've been going through this trial a long time. Not a little while, like it says. But we again need to understand, we're talking about eternal life here, folks. Eternity. And yes, the trials that we're going through, some are longer than others. Some are more difficult than others. We're going to get to that in a second. But there is a limit to it. And when we stand in eternity, this will be... Not even a distant memory. This the the, the glory of eternity will so eclipse the little while that we go through the trials. The we see the, the restraint of the trials, the reason for the trials, he tells us that they are necessary. That, that God is not just some capricious God. He's not, he's not up there, this sadistic father that just likes to torture us and, and put us through difficulties, see how we're going to handle it. No, there's a, there's a reason for it. There's a reality to it. I love this about Peter and, and all of the, the apostles as they write their letters when they speak of difficulties and trials we go to. He's not minimizing them. He uses the word distressed. Distressed. Trials and difficulties, when they get elevated, they do distress us. And he doesn't chastise them for being distressed. He comes alongside, hey, I understand. And and as it tells us in Psalm 103, God understands our frame. He made us. He doesn't downplay or dismiss the trials. But notice again in verse 6, we are to greatly rejoice in spite of the trials. We see also the range of the trials, the degrees. He uses the term various here. That word literally means like multicolored, multifaceted. Speaking of the trials that we face, they come at us from all different directions. They come at us in all different shapes and sizes, different time periods, different lengths. But turn over with me real quick, a couple of pages, chapter 4 of this letter. Verse 10. It says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That word manifold in verse 10 is the same word various in verse 6. Now, if we put that together and understand what Peter is saying throughout the whole tone of his letter, and as we go through it, we're going to see this. Yes, the trials that we face are multifaceted. They come at us from all different directions. and all of it, But God's grace is, the, is, is greater than that. He said, to, he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for the trial that you're going through. The same, the same word here. We can sometimes think that the trials that we're facing and the difficulties that we're facing, we can't take care of. We can't handle. But notice real quickly it says, that we are to serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward is one who receives something from his master and is responsible to use it properly. Now, with that being said, back to our trials, in 1 Corinthians 10.13 it says, no temptation, and I pause right there, that word temptation is the same word that is translated trials in our verse 6, back in 1 Peter. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried or tested beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, with the trial, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Pulling all of these things together, God gives us the grace to get through the trial that he has allowed to come our way. It is up to us to use that grace. We are responsible, we are stewards of what he gives us. For us to stand and complain about the trial that he sent our way is is saying, God, you haven't given me what you've told me you've given me. It also tells us in verse 10, back there in verse 4, that we are to use gifts to come alongside one another. We have been given grace sometimes to use in helping and blessing others get through their trials. We need to be continually sensitive to that. Well, Peter continues in our our text talking about these trials. He gives us the reason for it. It's for refining. It is to prove our faith so that the proof of your faith, he says there, that word proof there is the the proving that was done, the, the, the process done to find precious metals like gold where they would heat it up to a liquid form and they would take off the impurities of the gold. That's the word that is used here to purify it, to demonstrate its authenticity, to strengthen the metal. Fire does to gold what trials do to our faith. If we embrace what Peter is telling us here, we need to look at those trials, look at those difficulties, look at those particular people, look at those situations. Even looking at temptations, while God does not tempt us, he allows temptation to come to us. So we look at all of these things, and I I challenge us this morning as we're looking at this, to look at these things from a different viewpoint. I see Peter telling us here that our troubles, our trials, they're actually serving us. They are actually doing good for us. And I know that's hard to embrace when we're in the middle of it, but that's what Peter is telling us here. It's doing us good. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now we sang the first part of this earlier today. I love how the Holy Spirit does that. Romans 8:28 and turn there anyway even if you know it by memory because we're not stopping there. Romans 8:28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among the brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Stop there a moment. Again, God speaking through Paul here gives us a glimpse into, again, the security that we have in this relationship that we have. If we are truly born-again believers of Jesus Christ, it tells us that God looks at us already glorified. Look at the past tense. Our glorification doesn't take place until we stand in heaven one day in our new glorified body, standing before our Lord and Savior. But it's such a done deal in God's book, he's already calling it past tense. Has glorified. But the the verse continues, verse 31, it says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, verse 28 is one that is quoted. We sang it earlier. It brings great comfort to us because we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That brings great comfort to us in our trials. And, and I've heard people quote verse 32 often saying, you know, God loves us so much He he will freely give us all things. But I want you to notice something looking at your text. That word all things at the end of 32 is the same word in verse 28 all things. So you mean God freely gives us trials and troubles? He gives those to us? No thanks, right? (laughs) I, I like reading verse 32 when it says he freely gives us all things like, you know, like, like, like a new job or a you know, you know, cure for these things. But God freely gives us all things. Now, we can look at this again in our limited understanding and in our flesh and say, what kind of God would do that? A, an eternal God. An eternal God that loves you and he knows what is best for you. And he wants to purify your faith. He wants to prove your faith. He wants to increase your faith. He wants to strengthen your faith. He's not looking at the today. He's looking at eternity. He's looking at what you can become if you embrace this incredible thing. We, we see an illustration of this. Psalm 105, and you don't need to, to turn there. Uh, Psalm 105, in verse 16, it says, and he called for a famine upon the land. David is now recalling back to Genesis. and He says he called for a famine upon the land. That means God caused the famine. That means God caused the rain to stop falling. It caused the crops to dry up. It caused the cattle to die. God caused that. He broke the whole staff of bread. In verse 17 of Psalm 105, it says, he sent a man before them. Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So now we see he's talking about the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. His brothers, his 11 brothers, jealous of him, the favoritism that his father was showing, cast him into the pit, decided let's not kill him, let's sell him to these these slave traders that are going by. So they sell him to them and they take him on into Egypt and, and everything. Well, wait a second. It says here that God sent him. God sent him. Well, here again, we have that, that beautiful balance that we just need to embrace. Does, does the fact that God sent Joseph to Egypt somehow relinquish any responsibility of his brothers selling him into slavery? Absolutely not. They are responsible for their action. They are responsible for their sin, but God caused it and God used it. And we see it come to fruition completely in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, after the brothers are reunited Joseph's now in power over Egypt. And he says, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God knows what he's doing. God has an eternal purpose involved. And so often we can get caught up in our little thing. Well, God's caught up in your little thing too. This is intimate and personal with you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to grow you up. He wants to use you in mighty ways. He doesn't send these things to us to say, well, let me see how they handle this. I'm trying to debate whether using between these two guys. No. He knows us. It's to show us, it's to reveal to us, it's to strengthen us. I. I read certain verses, and as I put it into this context, it seems to make more sense. Isaiah 53.10, it tells us, it pleased God, it pleased the Father to crush Jesus. Does that sound like a loving Father to you? It does to me, when I put it in this context. Because the Father wasn't looking at that moment as the pleasure, it was looking at the result of it, the salvation of you and me looking at the eternal picture of it all. It pleased God to crush Jesus at that moment on the cross so that he would take all of our sin debt upon himself so that we could live eternally with him. And it pleased God to do that. And it pleases God to send trials to us because he knows what it's gonna do in us. And if we, if we take that, that on ourselves and we, and we embrace that, Again, I'm drawn back to a, a movie from the 80s, Karate Kid. Anybody remember that movie from the 80s? That's, by the way, the remake, I won't watch it because there's no way that you could, you could have somebody else play Mr. Miyagi. I mean, there's just no way. But you remember, I mean, he tells this kid, he want, the kid comes to me, he goes, I want you to teach me karate. And he says, all right, go wax the car. Remember, wax on, wax off, you know, and he, you know, okay, he gets done with that card. he goes, no, all the cars, and there's like 20 of them there, you know, wax on, wax off, paint the fence, you know, and he's going, and his muscles hurt, and he's angry at this man for what he, you've made me your slave, you've turned me into just doing this free labor for you, I asked you to teach me karate, and remember the scene there, he's kind of in his face, right, and all of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi, yeah, you know, and he throws a punch and wham, you know, wax, and wax off, you know, and boom, and he's blocking all the punches and he gets it, you know. And then at the end, you know, wah, you know, remember? <laughs> it all came to, it didn't make any sense at the time. It didn't, it, 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 this, this kid, this little kid didn't understand it. Didn't get why I got to go through all of this trial and this hurt and this pain. But the master knew why. And if we embrace this in ourselves and and the trials that we go through, we can rejoice greatly as as Peter is telling the people and receiving this letter for that. We can rejoice greatly in this because we know there's a reason. We know there's a purpose and he tells us what it is. It says, though you're tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see the results of the trials, the praise, the glory, and honor. One day we are gonna stand before him. And this, this still, I, I I can't wrap my mind around this moment, but Jesus, our Lord, our savior, is gonna stand and say, Well done, good and faithful slave, well done. He's gonna praise you. He's gonna, he's gonna give us glory, he's gonna allow us to rule and reign with him. He's going to give us honor. He's going to give us rewards for going through this. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Praise, honor, glory coming to us. Praise, honor, and glory then going to Him as we cast our crowns, all, all of our praise back upon Him because it's all Him. Well, verse verse 8, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I, I have a feeling Peter is recalling a moment when he's writing this letter many years before, when someone else made a statement that, that, was, that was probably spoken too quickly, Peter was the one usually opening his mouth just to change feet, but here, he's probably remembering a different time when Thomas was the one that said, you know what, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose until I see it, till I see him, till I can place my hand in his side, till I can see him, and Jesus shows up. Thomas, place your hand here. And, and Thomas sees and he believes and Jesus said, blessed are those who did not see yet believe. That's you. That's me. And that's what Peter is saying here. You have not seen him, but you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This word that's translated obtaining here is in the text, not like the one before. This is here, but it's really a present tense of of, of having something already in this salvation. Again, eternal life begins when? When you are born again. And it lasts how long? Eternally. We are already receiving benefits from this, this, this salvation, this inheritance that is coming to us. And when we fully embrace it, the joy that we have, the assurance that we have, we can fully, we can get everything out of this. Jesus said he came to give us life abundantly. Now that doesn't mean new cars and new homes and new mansions and money coming. No, it means to have this joy, inexpressible, full of glory. We can have that when we embrace this. Charles Spurgeon says, a little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Do you have that? Do you have that assurance? Do you have that joy inexpressible and full of glory? You can. You can. Just embrace the grace. Embrace this mystery. He loves you that much. And again, he knows us. He knows us so well that he said, I'm gonna give them the inheritance and I gotta make sure they get here. And he did. Father, we thank you for this inheritance that you have reserved for us. Lord, when we think about it, it really can just blow us away. You are so good. We stand in awe of you. If you are here this morning and you are feeling a stirring within you, a restlessness, because you're not sure if you have been born again, if you have this inheritance that we've been talking about. You can be certain. It's it's not a matter of what you do. It's not a matter of earning anything. It's simply being, again, a matter of being born again spiritually into the family of God and there's only one way to do that and that is to confess that you are a sinner, that you have sinned against a holy and righteous and perfect God. And In that confession, you are agreeing with him that the the sin that you have committed, the sin that is in, in your life right now must be done away with. It must be paid for. And you trust in his finished work on the cross to pay for that sin. You repent of your sin, which means you turn from your sin, you turn to Jesus, and you receive his salvation. If that is you here today, you simply respond to the Holy Spirit moving within you. Confess your sin and receive your Savior. And you too can have that assurance. Father, for the rest of us here who are truly born again, our prayer is that this truth would sink deeply within us, that we would embrace the trials that we face as your way of preparing us for what's next and for eternity. We trust in your, in your protection and in your love Lord, we pray that you just, you reveal yourself to us in a whole new way, continually. As we stand and we look at the at the landscape in front of us, show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd all stand with me, we'll sing one more song of worship to our Lord. If you need prayer... For-